Hi, I'm Veronica, and I'll be your sleep guide tonight. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Dead Asleep Pod. And if you like this podcast, check out the Curse Cafe and Social Unrest Podcasts. Our topic today is going to be exorcisms, specifically those of Latoya Ammons, Emma Schmid, and inspiration for the movie The Exorcist, Roland Doe. We'll be reading from Medium, Indie Star, and Novel Suspects, and as always, links to these stories will be in the description box. But first, let's begin by taking a deep breath, and then another. And as we breathe, we're going to begin to quiet our minds, thinking only with anticipation about the stories we're about to hear. And as you breathe, relax your hands and your feet. Then move that relaxing feeling to your legs and arms. Release any tension that you have in your limbs. And let's let our torso sink deep into our mattress. One more deep breath. And we're ready to begin. The Exorcisms of Emma. July 17, 1931. It was early morning in Vatican City. Most people were asleep, including the Pope himself, Pius XI. But his stone-faced papal secretary of state never slept, or so it seemed, as he tackled the papers at his desk at 2 a.m. It was a fraught time to head up Vatican affairs and the stress took its toll. Pamphlets had circulated the last few days accusing the Pope of being an anti-fascist agitator and calling for his arrest. Down with the Pope was the slogan of the day. The Vatican bureaucrat was pulling an all-nighter to deal with the fallout. That's when a deafening roar sent him flying from his seat. Vatican City shook, windows shattered, a powerful explosion reverberated through the air. Thousands of residents ran screaming, some for shelter, others toward the epicenter of the explosion. Vatican officials brandishing torches ran through the dark, passing fig trees that seemed to have been dropped from the sky uprooted and sprawled unnaturally across the ground. Twisted metal was everywhere. Smoke hung in the air as Vatican police rushed to check on the Pope. With the same urgency, messages were sent to Italy's political leader, Benito Mussolini. There had been 10 popes assassinated in history but the last had been more than 600 years ago. If Pius turned out to be dead, hell on earth would be unleashed. 
The Vatican police and the papal secretary breathed a sigh of relief to find Pius in his bed. As the melee turned into a frantic hunt for the perpetrators, a faction within the church credited a petite woman named Emma. 5,000 miles across the ocean, in the depressed farm town of Erling, Iowa, population 350, with saving the Pope's life. The unassuming woman, the subject of a series of dangerous exorcisms, had turned herself into a secret weapon in the war on evil. Emma H. Schmid had brown eyes and a ruddy complexion. She was born in Switzerland shortly before her Catholic parents, Jakob and Anna, farmers immigrated to the United States. Put to work as a teenager in a factory, likely making dresses, she heard other workers mock religion and stood up in its defense. Her parents also rejected the church. Emma frequently argued with her fathers and brothers about their lifestyles, and her father emotionally and possibly physically abused her. Emma was belittled, ostracized, and made to feel worthless for the very thing most important to her, her faith. Church was her refuge, a place to get away and envision a better life. Sometimes she attended afternoon and evening services on the same day. She dreamed of becoming a nun. As a young adult, Emma underwent a medical operation. The nature of the operation remains unclear, though it may have been a hysterectomy, often prescribed to treat the now debunked diagnosis of a woman's hysteria with which Emma was branded. She was brought to New York to be seen by hysteria specialists. After surgery, things went downhill. Emma's personality changed, particularly in relation to religion. Notes recorded from priests list some of these behaviors. She threw blessed articles away, smashed crucifixes, and had thoughts of despair. The young woman who had always loved church voiced urges to destroy vessels of holy water and confessed to wanting to strangle her priest. She struggled to control sexual urges. Something dark seemed to rise inside of her. There is something running up my back into the head. Emma tried to describe what she experienced and from there into the heart. Capping her terror, she reported hearing nightly voices coming from below. She prayed for someone who could help. Theophilus Xavier Brissinger was better known to parishioners as Father Theo. Stout with a dark, heavy beard and wire spectacles, the Bavarian-born priest had served two churches in New York City when he began to answer requests to perform exorcisms on parishioners who believed they were under the control of a demon spirit. 
Though possession always claimed a place in church doctrine, some dioceses wanted nothing to do with the concept, and the leaders of Theos drew a line in the sand. The split with the local Catholic authorities ran deep enough to ship Theo out of the Big Apple. Exiled to Marathon, Wisconsin, he ministered to a modest church called St. Anthony's. He fit right in with the rural ethos. He was the rare priest who could go from giving communion at services to wielding an axe to clear land for a new building. Soon after settling at his new post, Father Theo, 39, got word from Thomas Drum, Bishop of Des Moines, about a strange case. 26-year-old Emma Schmidt of Germantown was suffering from disturbing experiences. Theo had met the devoutly religious Emma and her family years before, when she was 16 and Theo was studying theology in Milwaukee before his stint in New York. His notes reflect finding her always truthful and obedient, cheerful and companionable, and leading an exemplary life. Despite the fallout from his possession cases back east, the request to look into such a claim did not faze Father Theo. As one of his colleagues, Reverend Father Carl Vogel, later wrote of Theo's state of mind before Emma's case, he had little suspicion that he would meet with the severest experience as yet encountered by him. Father Theo followed Roman ritual, which contained the church-mandated guidelines to diagnose a possession and differentiate it from illness or fraud. I am not so easily convinced that there is a possession, he explained to the Milwaukee Journal in a rare interview. Hundreds of persons have been sent to me by priests and laymen who believe that there is a possession. Usually I find otherwise. Emma's case was another story. She reportedly spoke in voices that weren't hers. Some of the voices coming out of Emma spoke in English or German, languages Emma spoke natively. But Theo and the other attendants also documented that some of the voices understood Italian, which Father Theo had learned in New York, Polish, Latin, and Hebrew. Emma's formal education stopped at elementary school, and she did not know these languages. Apparently, Reverend Vogel, who studied the case at the time, wrote of the voices. They would have understood any language spoken today and would have answered in it. Father Theo even found that certain voices preferred certain languages. During a session one day, Emma appeared to be hurtled across the room. She was a petite 5'7", just 135 pounds by one record, but one priest who was helping and known to be strong as a bear reported being unable to lift her from the ground, even with the help of three others. 
The priests observed Emma undergoing chilling physical changes. Her abdomen, as described in the priest's records, would either move up or down with a terrific rapidity beyond the power of a human being or swell up to the immense volume of a big barrel on which no weight would make an impression. At those times, according to witnesses, the iron rods of the bed bent down to the floor. During trances of possession, attending priests tried to open her eyes, which were shut and possibly tight. When they forced her lids open, they say they found a thick yellow skin over the eyes with something like a big pea seen moving beneath them. When they presented objects secretly blessed or sprinkled with holy water, she foamed at the mouth and became angry. She was indifferent to unblessed objects. Father Theo unleashed a prayer known as the Appeal to St. Michael recommended by the Vatican as a tool of exorcism. Classifying the case as a true possession, Father Theo urged Emma to allow him to place her at St. Joseph Parish in Erling, Iowa, where she would be cared for by the Franciscan sisters. He hoped Erling's isolation would conceal her condition from others. I should like to have brought her here, Theo explained at Erling since it would create too much excitement in her home. Emma feared what might happen, but agreed. I will come no matter how hard it will be, she wrote in a letter to Father Theo. They put Emma on a train from Wisconsin to Iowa and warned the conductors her behavior could turn on a dime. Not told the nature of the problem, the conductor surreptitiously watched her, walking back and forth in the train car. At some point on the trip, Emma apparently exhibited frightening behavior. Details about the train ride were never revealed, but the conductors came out the other side rattled. Father Theo took a different train to another depot in Iowa. A friend of his, Reverend Joseph Steiger served as pastor at St. Joseph's. Steiger, who had a pleasantly placid face with wire-rimmed glasses, drove to meet his colleague, but his car acted up. What should have been a quick drive reportedly took two hours. Once he arrived, Steiger could find nothing wrong with the car. Father Theo waved away his friend's apologies. I would have been much more surprised if everything had gone smoothly, he reassured. The devil will try his utmost to foil our plans. Theo then blessed the car with the sign of the cross and climbed into the back seat. Emma didn't just fear being away from home and the ongoing exorcisms. She feared her own behavior and impulses, of which she no longer seemed to have control. When representatives from the Erling Parish met Emma at her station, she regarded them with daggers in her eyes, later confessing an urge to hurt them. At St. Joseph's Convent, 
she wouldn't touch food that had been secretly blessed. When the sisters brought her an otherwise identical serving without the blessing, she ate. The woman who grew up dreaming of becoming a nun was now living in a convent, but in a state of semi-captivity under the grimmest circumstances. Only a small circle of trusted people were told what was happening, but keeping Emma's secret proved difficult. Theo's notes indicated that she intermittently roared and bellowed and barked and mauled and moaned and shrieked. Screams echoed through the neighborhood and into windows. People rushed to the convent asking if someone was being murdered or a pig slaughtered. Michael Schwartz, then a schoolboy, years later recalled that word got out what was happening. In a small town like this, everyone knew what was going on. Exorcisms were held in a bedroom in the convent. Emma's teeth gnashed as her arms were bound to the bed frame. Theo would begin with the litany of all saints, evoking the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost in the name of Jesus Christ. When Theo recited the words, Lord, save your people from the persecution of the devil, an agitated voice from Emma moaned and yelped. The exorcist wished to determine the identity of the spirits. According to doctrine, they had to tell them their names. And in order to expel spirits, he needed to elicit confessions from them. He detected distinct voices, some deep, some raspy or shrill, some were bestial, and still others sounded more human. Theo was intrigued when he heard a feminine voice that was not Emma's and tried to engage. Is there a woman here? Father Theo asked. Yes. I command you to tell me your name, replied the priest. My name is Minnie, Minnie, Minnie. Answering in threes was common among the voices that presented themselves as malicious spirits through Emma. Are you living or dead? asked Theo, according to his detailed transcripts. I am dead, said the voice. Minnie had been Emma's aunt on her mother's side and had been believed by the townspeople to be a witch. She was also known as mistress to Emma's father, Jacob. Theo began to believe that Minnie was the one who had made Emma vulnerable to possession. By interviewing Minnie, he thought he could discover the key to the case. Are you damned? Yes, I am damned. By one account, Emma, when possessed by Minnie, spit and vomit so much that Theo had to constantly wipe off his cassock. Did you give something to the girl, the priest prodded, by means of which the relation of this girl to the devils was established? I have done that, the voice answered, then acknowledged lacing Emma's food and drink with bewitched herbs years earlier. If the voice was to be believed, the devious secrets of Emma's abusive home life were coming to light. Theo concluded Minnie's poisoning created a condition in Emma's body which gave the spirits, as they interpreted it, 
a satanic rite to enter her. Father Thea was made for taking punishment. A fellow man of the cloth marveled at his superhuman stamina, and another itemized qualities including nerves of steel and an iron constitution, as well as a powerful, well-modulated voice, lively imagination, retentive memory. As a 12-year-old boy in Bavaria, he endured a long illness which inspired a desire to devote himself to God. He entered the religious path in his 20s, relatively late. Some of Theo's professor's notes from his theology studies still survive. Behavior always exemplary, intellectual attainments gratifyingly successful, untiring diligence and inflexible energy. Father Theo used a regimen of self-denial to build up his endurance. The priest who makes an exorcism must pray as he's never prayed before, Theo later said. As a rule, priests who exercise do not live more than a couple of years after an exorcism, but God has given me an extra gift of strength. Instead of exercising, he preferred simply calling his work casting out devils. Reverend Steiger, Father Theo's friend, by contrast, was not comfortable with the exorcisms. He often had to leave the room as Emma convulsed and screamed. Bishop Drum checked in with Steiger, asking if he'd properly thought through the decision to allow Emma Schmid and Erling. I will caution you most emphatically that there may be some very serious consequences resulting to you in person. The devil will certainly try his utmost to seek revenge on you. Should you be willing that this unfortunate woman be relieved of this terrible oppression? Well, I hardly think that it would be as bad as all that, Steiger answered. The devil has no more influence than God permits. Steiger's private concerns deepened, however, as he observed how Emma had to be carried back and forth to the site of the exorcisms. For a time, she stopped eating solids and had to be force-fed through injection by the nuns. Great God, she is dying, Steiger said one day. He went to retrieve the holy oils. If Emma died, Steiger knew the exorcisms would be blamed and their careers, his and certainly Father Theo's, ruined. Father Theo tried to calm him down. The woman will not die, the exorcist insisted, with his usual unflappable faith in God and in himself. Absolutely not. This manifestation is only one of Satan's cunning tricks. He cannot and will not be permitted to kill her. Theo had another reason to be confident. Emma, whom many in her hometown believed to be so fragile, was fighting hard to reclaim her life. Steiger's sleep became fitful. During the night, he was awoken by gnawing sounds. He had been in his modest house for over a decade and had never heard such noises. 
Freight trains rattled in the distance through the plains, but this was something different, something all around him. As he searched for the source and pounded the walls, the noises became louder. Was his mind buckling under the pressure? Was it rats? Hell rats was all he could think. According to the assistant pastor, Arthur Ring, in whom Steyer confided, his mind spinning from sleep deprivation. Others involved in the exorcisms reported similar disturbances. Observers noted that during exorcisms, the spirit voices speaking through Emma were particularly hard on Steiger. Another reason he became uncomfortable. Attendees of the exorcisms were warned to take confession first because the demonic spirits would try to humiliate them, spilling their secret sins and fears, as well as predicting their fates. In one exorcism session, according to Steiger, the demonic voice lashed out at him. You will have to suffer for this. Just wait until the end of the week. Father Theo's records of the prediction reflected an even more precise threat than Steiger's account. The evil spirit who was in Emma predicted that the auto of a certain priest would be smashed on a definite day when he would be using it on a sick call and in such a way that no cause would be detected. That Friday, undaunted, Steiger visited a sick parishioner. He was surrounded by farmland, the lifeblood of the area. Iowa and the rest of the Midwest was shifting into the era of the Great Depression, with conflicts growing over agricultural prices and productions. There were both milk wars and cow wars on the horizon complete with militant movements to enforce competing sides. Devastating drought conditions were settling into the region. Steiger got back on the road in the same new car that had acted up when picking up Father Theo at the train depot. By his own account, a black cloud suddenly appeared before the car as he reached a bridge over a ravine. As Reverend Carl Vogel relayed Steiger's experience, it seemed as if his eyes were blindfolded and the vehicle crashed with an indescribable force, even though Steiger had by that point shifted into the lowest gear. The car smashed through a trellis hanging over the ravine, wobbling with the weight of the driver. A farmer who heard the crash rushed over. Father, father, what has happened? Are you hurt? Steiger slowly crawled out, frightened nearly to death. He went to a doctor to get checked for injuries, then insisted on going straight to Emma. Before he entered the room, a voice from the woman addressing Father Theo roared, I fixed your partner. Steiger entered with defiance, saying of the devil, my auto is a complete wreck, but he was not able to harm me personally. The demonic voice coming from Emma replied, be ready for a whole lot more fun. Among the spirits he believed held Emma in their grip 
Theo sought to confront Jacob, Emma's father. I solemnly command in the name of the crucified Savior of Nazareth that you present the father of this woman and that he give me an answer. A rough voice grumbled back from Emma. Are you the unfortunate father who has cursed his own child? Theo asked. No. Who are you? I am Judas. The moment was so chilling for the devoutly religious group. Vogel later described Steiger and some of the Franciscan sisters stampeding out of the room. To Father Theo's demands to know Judas's intentions with Emma, the answer came to bring her to despair so that she will commit suicide and hang herself. She must get the rope. She must go to hell. Between sessions with Father Theo, Emma tried to describe her harrowing experiences. My body, she said, feels as if it's filled with fire. She gave more details. I am enveloped in dark night as in a cloud. Very many devils are present, hissing in all directions and like flashes of lightning. I see their heads with the fiery eyes. Two gigantic serpents are above me. Emma described a vision of battle in which Lucifer, Beelzebub, and her father Jacob directed legions of devils against St. Michael. In a culture and era in which there was little recourse for domestic violence, Emma claimed to witness an otherworldly battle with the spirit of her abusive father. After contending with the voice who identified itself as Judas, Father Theo tried to again draw out Jakob Schmid, this time making contact. Theo asked, what do you want to do here? The voice replied, I want to lead my child to hell. Theo grew confrontational and protective. You are in hell, but your daughter will never go to hell with you. The voice grew more belligerent. Am I not the father of the child? Can I not do with her as I please? No, boomed Theo. The priest carefully observed Emma, who seemed entirely unconscious as he carried out involved interrogations of the other voices. Between sessions, Emma would explain she did not know what happened during the exorcisms. Father Theo identified other spirits, including John, a former suitor of Emma's who advances she had rejected and who had committed suicide. Here was a novelty of the case that not only jolted Father Theo, but also began to attract intense interest from his superiors, both in the Midwest and in Rome. According to the exorcist and the clerical observers, Emma appeared to contain legions, or a multitude of spirits, a number Theo eventually tallied as being in the millions. Church officials always approached exorcism cases with special caution, and the administration of Pope Pius XI restricted authorizations for who could perform exorcisms. Some within the church found the reports of Father Theo's interactions with Emma impossible to believe. None had heard of anything like it. 
some suspected hallucination or outright trickery. Theo had already had his life and career overthrown back in New York because of exorcisms. And Emma's case could invite far more trouble. Theo bolstered his position with eyewitnesses, including Father Steiger, who went on record behind the scenes verifying the reports. A Milwaukee-based physician, also a practicing Catholic, studied Emma's convulsions, which he concluded were not due to medical causes. The doctor also observed and verified Emma's knowledge of languages she had never learned. Steiger's sister and housekeeper, meanwhile, wrote affidavits attesting to what they seen, backing up Theo's accounts. The case was further boosted by another woman, a purported spiritual conduit named Therese Newman, a celebrity among Catholics around the world. Therese, 29, lived in a small Bavarian village and as a child became partially paralyzed. She had lost and regained her eyesight, according to reports, and claimed to eat only consecrated wafers or bread. She also claimed to experience stigmata, or the spontaneous appearance of wounds similar to those Christ received in the crucifixion. One visitor from India reported Therese displayed square wounds that went straight through her hands. Worshippers came from all over to see her. Others came to test her, some leaving unconvinced. One German journalist named Fritz Gerlich sought out Therese in order to expose her as a fraud. He ended up so fully enraptured by her, he converted to Catholicism. Believers listened closely to Therese's predictions and reports of visions. On December 22, 1927, Therese told a visiting bishop from Cleveland, in your country, there lives a person in whom soon great things will be done. Father Theo did not initially connect the prediction with Emma, though he read the words to Emma as she later reported hearing a voice at that moment that said, you are that person. A priest based in Buffalo, Reverend Frederick J. Buns heard about Father Theo's work and also zeroed in on Emma as being the chosen one prophesied by Therese. The Cleveland Bishop, meanwhile, prodded Therese whether the person in question was dead. Oh no, she replied. The one I am talking about is alive. She is living in your country and soon great things will be done in her. Then something changed. Emma, it seemed, fought off enough of the demonic spirits to make room for another communication. Through Emma, Father Theo found himself discoursing not only with voices claiming to be evil legions, but with divine spirits. Emma, or the voices speaking through her, delivered speeches that surpassed the theological understanding expected from a lay person. The priest studied the case, concluding that her historical, theological, and scriptural knowledge could not have been acquired or invented by Emma. 
Theo and many in the church began to consider Emma a true energumen, or a powerful vehicle through which to transmit spirits and deliver prophecies. To supporters of Emma's case, the shape of the great things predicted by Therese Newman came into focus. Demonic voices coming through Emma in late 1928 insisted that the Antichrist had been born and that Judas would possess the human form. Now the voice of Jesus Christ came through Emma and awed those who believed in her case. Father Theo was marked for death, the voice decreed. Your confessor will not live anymore unless I prolong his life, and I will prolong it if it will become necessary. He must prepare the world. The Antichrist will appear quite unexpectedly. It was a frightening twist that threw everyone involved for a loop. Theo, 62 years old, now believed he had been bestowed with one mission, to prepare the world for the Antichrist, possibly to stop that ultimate enemy of good. If the prophecy was right, that mission was all that kept him alive. It also meant that every demon he expelled from Emma brought him closer to his life's divinely ordained purpose and to his demise. His life voyage sailed between Scylla and Charybdis. If he eased off on the search, he would die. If he successfully completed it, he would die. Through the array of voices, demonic and heavenly, Theo identified a larger plan from the afterlife. Lucifer was hatching a scheme to force his way back into heaven from which he had been expelled at the beginning of time. In order to do so, he relied on the coming of the Antichrist, sending devils through Emma as a kind of support army to take over Earth. Through the first half of 1931, Emma Schmidt and Therese Newman's warnings of looming evil crested. One of the priests studying both cases, Reverend Buns of Buffalo, found in the links between the two women a divine purpose. Correlating Connors Ruth, Newman's village, and Erling, in the Midwest, Emma and Father Theo became a kind of precognition task force for the church, along with Therese and her entourage of clergymen and worshippers in her tiny Bavarian hamlet. Their cautions were viewed with increased gravity, especially when Therese gave a stipend to her priest to give a mass for the Pope, saying she feared for his safety. The women's urgent messages reached Rome and reached it, many would claim, just in time. The next evening, July 16, 1931, around 7.30 p.m., as the Papal Secretary of State worked at his desk and Pope Pius slept, the unimaginable happened. Church sextons were inspecting St. Peter's Cathedral in Vatican City, where the Pope often conducted Mass. One found a tin box in a dark corner at the tomb of Pope Clement XIII, its sleepy marble lions keeping watch. On the tomb, a message, Dynamite will blow up this case. Reporter Arnaldo Cortese 
the New York Times foreign correspondent described the object as a metal cylinder, eight inches long and four inches in diameter, wrapped in paper. A sergeant from the Papal Vatican Police arrived, then guards swarmed. They brought the box, which they determined to be a cocoa tin, to a guard office and examined it. They listened. No ticking, no smoke. A hopeful thought occurred to the investigators. It could be a hoax. They decided to place the box in an open field. They posted guards around the gardens to prevent anyone from getting through the gates. When the bomb exploded in the middle of the night, it left a crater in the ground. Glass and debris flew everywhere. And now antique term for an explosive, infernal machine, was fittingly applied by the press to what seemed to many a war between heaven and hell. An artillery expert was brought in who concluded the bomb was designed to explode as soon as it was lifted from the floor. Had it not been discovered when it was, it would have done far more damage, racking up untold casualties. Remarkably, nobody was hurt. Officials rushed to find Pope Pius, who had slept through the explosion. The Pope excused himself to his study to pray. The Vatican City was surrounded with guards, who frantically looked for clues and searched anyone who tried to enter. Mussolini, Italy's premier, was described as shocked when told at an airfield what happened and he sent more resources to aid the Vatican's officers. Some thought the fascists, Mussolini's party, were responsible for the bombs, following recent clashes with the Vatican. Others thought it was anti-fascists trying to stir tensions. In a world checkered with bright-line political movements, Vatican officials pointed the finger at communists or terrorists. The bombers were never found, and the case remains unsolved. Back in the States, on the day of the explosion, Father Theo transcribed a message, Emma triumphantly relayed from the Virgin Mary, saving the Pope. My servant, your confessor, gives me joy, and I am pleased with his work, namely, that for my honor, the welfare of the Church, and the salvation of souls, so many devils have been cast into hell. It was high time for these devils help to lay the bomb to destroy Rome and kill the Holy Father. Had the devils not been bound before and cast into hell, the bomb would not have been found. The notes written in German by Father Theo in Emma's case file, compiled later by a group of priests, reflect a dramatic conclusion about Emma's role in safeguarding the same Pope who had narrowed the scope for exorcisms, a role that has never been revealed publicly. Emma and Therese, the notes declared, both had their share in the discovery and subsequent harmless expulsion of this instrument of destruction. In fact, it kept disaster from Rome and the Pope. The Pope is free, the Pope is free, lamented some of the spirits who fled Emma's body, according to Father Theo's transcriptions. With the foiled assassination attempt, 
and Father Theo's hunt to identify the Antichrist through Emma's revelations shifted into high gear. Ha! taunted one of the evil spirits, Father Theo expelled from Emma in the early 1930s. In the year 1952, the Antichrist will begin its reign. Father Theo put together a veritable war room of priests, including buns, in Buffalo to scour the globe for the Antichrist. In Theo's interpretations of the prophecies that arrived through Emma, he was on borrowed time. He had just long enough to follow Emma's clues and find information on the Antichrist. Intelligence amassed. The human form of the Antichrist was said to be born in 1919, possibly in what was then known as Palestine, and possessed by the spirit of Judas. The parents of the Antichrist were said to be a nun of Jewish extraction and a schismatic Catholic bishop. The rule of the Antichrist would start in 1952, when the man would be 33 years old, the same age as Christ when crucified, and his reign would last for three and a half years and include three days of darkness foretold in the Bible. The details gleaned from Emma's possession shocked Father Theo and his allies. They fell almost precisely into line with the prophecies of a 19th century Catholic mystic named Catherine Emmerich, who had predicted the Antichrist reign would come approximately 50 years before 2000. Emmerich was eventually beatified or officially recognized as blessed by the Vatican. The dark contours of the team's daunting search came into focus. They were looking for an adolescent boy who also happened to be the embodiment of evil, but they had to constantly guard against an insidious possibility that the devil himself was tricking them from inside Emma. Emma, for her part, also confronted a dilemma. The more intelligence she was able to share about the Antichrist with Father Theo, the closer she brought her spiritual guide and confessor to death. Once he was gone, her personal fight against her possessions would almost certainly be lost. The Global Brotherhood of Priests provided a powerful network of investigators. Father Theo could dispatch surrogates anywhere in the world to follow leads, and those clerical surrogates were respected and welcomed into homes, businesses, and governments. They could question suspected antichrists and match up their personal details with the information obtained through Emma. There were so many candidates who could be investigated, each with clear indications of talent, as well as ominous signs of his future impact on the world. In Russia was a boy named Mikhail, whose past was cloudy. He was the 17th child born to his parents who didn't stay in one place for long. Now, just the right age, he was at a remote tractor station in Siberia and showing signs of being a prodigy, inventing dangerous weapons. Catholic priests had been rounded up in Russia at that time. Many never heard from again, and any surrogate sent by Father Theo had to operate covertly and even then risk their lives. Mikhail would go on to invent the AK-47, 
one of the most destructive assault weapons in history, with 1952 its first full year on the mass market. Then there was an inconspicuous adolescent boy of the same age, Georgios, living in a small Mediterranean village, who was being specially groomed for a military career. Georgios went on to lead a coup and became the ruthless dictator of Greece. One of the priests Father Theo recruited in his quest heard an odd announcement on the Colombian Broadcast Company by newscaster Edwin C. Hill on September 26, 1932 at 8.15 p.m. The priest scrambled to write it down word for word. There is a 12-year-old boy in Jerusalem connected with the second coming of Christ. The age was exactly right for the Antichrist. The priest rushed to relay the information to Father Theo, but when they contacted Hill, the newscaster did not have the recording of the newscast and apparently did not remember saying it. They had plenty of allies who could search Jerusalem, but not enough to go on. They felt foiled by dark forces. Meanwhile, despite Father Theo's vigor, the exorcisms wore on him physically and mentally. There were times he worked around the clock, though even nuns who worked in shifts were breaking down. He became so exhausted he couldn't recite the prayers and ritual texts, and at one point he was described as a walking corpse. Steiger's housekeeper recalled that all the nuns involved in the exorcisms requested and eventually received transfers. They all hoped for reprieve, but Therese Newman in Bavaria predicted the worst was still to come for her American counterpart, Emma. The lady will be possessed again. After falling into a trance, Therese had visions of Emma's possessions and exorcisms and said she never wished to see such things again. It was too painful, too terrifying. Emma endured such physical difficulty during her exorcisms that she was given last rites by the nuns in attendance. Father Vogel described a distorted appearance with Emma's pale, death-like, and emaciated head as red as glowing embers. Her eyes, lips, and body appeared so bloated that nuns reportedly backed away in fear that the possessed woman would somehow burst into pieces. By his own estimation, Father Theo had made progress. Every devil and damned soul he cast out of Emma was one less soldier in the Antichrist's army. The voice of one devil complained that hell cannot afford to send more devils for the fight and Theo reported Lucifer personally begging for the exorcisms to end. If there is a patron saint for Father Theo, a heavenly analog, no question it was Michael the Archangel. In biblical stories, Michael led God's armies to expel Satan from heaven. When Pope Leo XIII composed the standard prayer of exorcism, it was directed to Saint Michael. Theo had his sights on expelling Lucifer and Beelzebub as the leaders of the evil spirits. As his ally, Reverend Buns, put it, 
Lucifer had to go. It had come down to an ultimate confrontation between Father Theo and Evil. The small room was packed with nuns and assistants. Theo deployed his full arsenal of commands and prayers, with special objects hidden under his frock. A pyx or container holding the Blessed Sacrament, and a relic believed to have been part of the cross on which Christ was crucified. An assistant stood by to wipe perspiration from Theo's face and forehead, which pooled down in rivulets on the floor. He had to take breaks to change his habit. Out-of-body visions were not limited to Emma. Father Theo described a particularly striking vision he experienced, the room suddenly bursting into flames. Lucifer, a crown on his head, holding a sword of fire, approached. He was flanked by his right hand, Beelzebub. Lucifer threatened Theo, but confessed his powers had been weakened. Lucifer seemed to take the measure of the priest as they stared each other down. What could you do, the evil incarnate of Theo's vision asked, if you were bound as I am? Then Theo ordered Lucifer back to hell. The voice coming from Emma complained, does he not know that I must prepare the way for the Antichrist? How then can he banish me into hell? Theo's notes claimed that as the countless demonic spirits exited, they went through the hands as a rule, also through the feet. The spirits begged the exorcist not to force them to leave. Observers described Emma's arms dislodging from their bindings and away from attendants attempts to hold her down. Voices cried out, Beelzebub, Judas, Jacob, Mene, hell, hell, hell. With the worst of the spirits banished, Emma's body lifted nearly to a standing position, arms out. In a flash, her body was reported to be carried through the air. Theo said it was as if she were floating and clung to a wall above the door. Except for the war-scarred Father Theo, those present trembled with terror. The real fight they all knew was Emma's to win or lose. Theo shouted, pull her down. She must be brought back to her place upon the bed. Then her body sank down with an exhale of relief. It took an hour before Emma regained consciousness. Oh, Jesus, she said when she woke. Dearest Jesus, I am free. Oh, Jesus, I love you. Oh, Jesus, let me die. She smiled brightly, and it seemed like the first time she had smiled in ages. The group in the room with Emma erupted into sobs and cheers and prayers. Our joy was exceedingly great, Father Theo later wrote, still filled with emotion. We thanked God for our victory over hell. But Emma's liberation, as the priest called Emma's freedom, was short-lived lasting only a few days. She continued to require exorcisms, some in Iowa, some in Wisconsin, though surviving records do not reveal exactly how long these went on. This case will continue until Christ says it's enough. Father Theo lamented at one point. He was determined to keep her identity secret to prevent the hordes of followers 
of the sort Therese Newman attracted. This was wise. Only a few years later, Therese Newman had a vision of Adolf Hitler's downfall. And there were rumors that Hitler, hearing this, became obsessed with her, having her monitored. Fritz Gerlich, the skeptical journalist who became one of Newman's devoted followers, used the inspiration of Therese's visions to resist Hitler. The Fuhrer had him killed. Father Theo worked with Emma for 30 years, from the time she was in her mid-20s to mid-50s, eventually referring to her as my mystic, a tribute to how what he saw as prophetic visions on her part shaped his life. By the later stages of his role as her spiritual guide, Time magazine described the once ruddy priest as wise and white-haired. The exorcisms had left a chasm between Theo and his longtime friend, Reverend Steiger, at one point leading Steiger to angrily confront his fellow priest. Theo was not surprised by this sad turn, understanding better than anyone how much the exorcisms robbed from those involved. Speaking with another friar, Clement Neubauer, Theo was very clear on his plans for Emma's story. Father, as to my exorcisms, I have not published a single word, nor have I asked any person to publish a single word for me, but I have sent a complete account of all that has happened to the Holy See. Rome alone is competent to judge. Until Rome speaks, I shall be silent. Even as Emma's identity was carefully guarded, rumors spread of the terrible sights and sounds the exorcisms produced, supposedly prompting waves of converts who wanted to expel their sins to stave off possession. Reverend Vogel worked with the Reverend Steiger to publish a pamphlet with an account of some of Erling's exorcisms, but only fragments of Emma's larger story, using a pseudonym for Emma. The pamphlet led to an upsurge in fear of possession. Father Theo kept to his word about his own much more extensive records, which were in German and organized in manuscript form by several other priests and kept all these years from public view. Indications suggest Emma eventually shook off the need for more treatment from the church and after her part in the epic paranormal battles, went on to her greatest triumph, a quiet private life on her own terms. Emma never married or had children. She outlasted everyone who thought she would succumb to weak health or to the punishing exorcisms. Evidence suggests a continued estrangement from her family. Following her death in Milwaukee in 1964, her family buried her right next to her father, the very spirit she and Father Theo identified as having the strongest hold on her. Their joint tombstone reads, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. A Bible verse that appears shortly before a story about St. Paul successfully exercising a demon spirit from a possessed girl.
The Exorcisms of LaToya Ammons A woman and three children who claim to be possessed by demons. A nine-year-old boy walking backward up a wall in the presence of a family case manager and hospital nurse. Gary Police Captain Charles Austin said it was the strangest story he had ever heard. Austin, a 36-year veteran of the Gary Police Department, said he initially thought Indianapolis resident Latoya Ammons and her family concocted an elaborate tale as a way to make money. But after several visits to their home and interviews with witnesses, Austin said simply, I am a believer. Not everyone involved with the family was inclined to believe its incredible story. And many readers will find Ammon's supernatural claims impossible to accept. But whatever the cause of the creepy occurrences that befell the family, whether they were seized by a systematic delusion or demonic possession, it led to one of the most unusual cases ever handled by the Department of Child Services. Many of the events are detailed in nearly 800 pages of official records obtained by the Indianapolis Star and recounted in more than a dozen interviews with police, DCS personnel, psychologists, family members, and a Catholic priest. Ammons, who swears by her story, has been unusually open. While she spoke on the condition of her children not to be interviewed or named, she signed releases letting the star review medical, psychological, and official records that are not open to the public and not always flattering. Furthermore, the family story is made only more bizarre because it involves a DCS intervention, a string of psychological evaluations, a police investigation, and ultimately a series of exorcisms. It's a tale, they say, that started with flies. In November 2011, Ammon's family moved into a rental house on Carolina Street in Gary, a quiet lane lined with small one-story homes. Big black flies suddenly swarmed their screened-in porch in December, despite the winter chill. This is not normal, Ammon's mother, Rosa Campbell, remembers thinking. We killed them and killed them and killed them, but they kept coming back. There were other strange happenings, too. After midnight, Campbell and Ammons both said they occasionally heard the steady clump of footsteps climbing the basement stairs and the creak of the door opening between the basement and kitchen. No one was there. Even after they locked the door, the noise continued. Campbell said she awoke one night and saw a shadowy figure of a man pacing her living room. She leaped out of bed to investigate and found large, wet boot prints. On March 10, 2012, Campbell said the family's unease turned to fear. It was about 2 a.m. Normally, Campbell, Ammons, and her children would have been asleep, but they were mourning the death of a loved one with a group of friends. Ammons, who was in Campbell's bedroom, startled everyone by screaming, Mama! Mama! Campbell said she ran into her bedroom where her then 12-year-old granddaughter and a friend were staying. 
Ammons and Campbell said the 12-year-old was levitating above the bed, unconscious. According to their account of events, Ammons and several others surrounded the girl praying. Campbell said she remembers being terrified. I thought, what's going on, Campbell said. Why is this happening? Eventually, Campbell said her granddaughter descended into the bed. The girl woke up with no memory of what happened. Campbell and Ammon said the people who were visiting that night refused to return. Campbell says she remembers telling her daughter, we need help, we need to talk to someone who knows how to deal with it. Campbell and Ammon said they didn't know exactly what it was, but they believed it was something supernatural. They called local churches, but most refused to listen. Eventually, after listening to Campbell and Ammons talk about the house and visiting it, officials at one church told them the Carolina Street House had spirits in it. They recommended the family clean the home with bleach and ammonia, then use oil to draw crosses on every door and window. At the church's suggestion, Ammons said she poured olive oil on her three children's hands and feet, then smeared oil in the shape of crosses on their foreheads. Campbell and Ammons also told the star they reached out to two clairvoyants who said the family's home was besieged by more than 200 demons. Their explanation made sense to Campbell and Ammons because it meshed with their Christian faith. The best thing you can do is move, Ammons remembered the clairvoyants telling her but moving wasn't an option for the cash-strapped family. Instead, Ammons said she took a clairvoyance advice and made an altar in the basement. Ammons covered an end table with a white sheet, then placed a white candle and statue of Mary, Joseph, and Jesus on it. She opened a Bible to Psalm 91. She said she and another person donned white t-shirts, and wound white scarves around their heads. Also, on a clairvoyant's advice, they burned sage and sulfur throughout the house, starting upstairs and working their way down. The smoke was so thick they could hardly breathe. Ammons drew a cross with the smoke. The person she was with read Psalm 91 aloud as they moved through the house. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. Ammon said nothing odd happened for three days. Then things got worse. The family said demons possessed Ammon's and her children, then ages seven, nine, and twelve. The kids' eyes bulged, evil smiles crossed their faces and their voices deepened every time it happened. Campbell said the demons didn't affect her because she was born with protection from evil. She said she and others like her have a guardian who protects them. Ammon said she felt weak, lightheaded, and warm when she was possessed. Her body shook, and she said she felt out of control. You can tell it's different, something supernatural. The youngest boy, then seven, sat in a closet talking to a boy that no one else could see. The other boy was describing what it felt like to be killed. 
Campbell said the seven-year-old once flew out of the bathroom as if he'd been thrown, and the headboard once smacked into Ammon's daughter, causing a wound that needed stitches. The 12-year-old would later tell mental health professionals that she sometimes felt as if she were being choked and held down so she couldn't speak or move. She said she heard a voice say she'd never see her family again and wouldn't live another 20 minutes. Some nights were so bad the family slept at a hotel. Finally, in desperation, they went to their family physician, Dr. Jeffrey Anyukwu, on April 19, 2012. Ammon said she told him what they were going through, hoping he might understand. Anyukwu told the star, it was bizarre. 20 years and I've never heard anything like that in my life, he said. I was scared myself when I walked into the room. He said he would not speak in more detail unless Amos had psychiatric clearance for the waiver of confidentiality she had signed. In his medical notes about the visit, he wrote delusions of ghosts in home and hallucinations. He also wrote history of ghosts at home and delusional. What Ammons and Campbell say happened next also was detailed in a DCS report of a family case manager's interviews with medical staff. Chaos erupted. Campbell said Ammon's sons cursed the doctor in demonic voices, raging at him. Medical staff said the youngest boy was lifted and thrown into the wall with nobody touching him, according to a DCS report. The boys abruptly passed out and wouldn't come to, Campbell added. She cradled one boy in her arms. Ammons held the other. Someone from the doctor's office called 911. The doctor said seven or eight police officers and multiple ambulances showed up. Everybody was. They couldn't figure out exactly what was happening, he recalled. Police and emergency personnel took the boys to Methodist Hospital's campus in Gary. Ammon said hospital personnel laughed at her desire to anoint her sons in olive oil. I couldn't talk to them, she said, so I talked to God. The boys woke up in the hospital. The older boy, then nine, acted rationally, but the youngest screamed and thrashed. She said it took five men to hold him down. Meanwhile, someone called DCS and asked the agency to investigate Ammons for possible child abuse or neglect. The caller, who was not named in the DCS report, speculated that Ammons might have a mental illness. The person believed the children were performing for Ammons and she was encouraging their behavior. DCS family case manager, Valerie Washington, was asked to handle the initial investigation she gave the following account to police and in her intake officer's report. Hospital personnel examined Ammons and her children and found them to be healthy and free of marks or bruises. A hospital psychiatrist evaluated Ammons and determined she was of sound mind. Washington interviewed the family in the hospital. While she spoke with Ammons, the seven-year-old boy started growling with his teeth showing. His eyes rolled back in his head. The boy locked his hands around his older brother's throat 
and refuse to let go until adults pried his hands open. Later that evening, Washington and registered nurse Willie Lee Walker brought the two boys into a small exam room for an interview. Campbell joined them. The seven-year-old stared at his brother's eyes and began to growl again. It's time to die, the boy said in a deep, unnatural voice. I will kill you. While the youngest boy spoke, the older brother started headbutting Campbell in the stomach. Campbell grabbed her grandson's hands and started praying. What happened next would rattle the witnesses, and to some it would offer not only evidence, but proof of paranormal activity. According to Washington's original DCS report, an account corroborated by Walker, the nurse, the nine-year-old had a weird grin and walked backward up a wall to the ceiling, then flipped over Campbell landing on his feet. He never let go of his grandmother's hand. He walked up the wall, flipped over her, and stood there, Walker told the star. There's no way he could have done that. Later, police asked Washington whether the boy had run up the wall as though performing an acrobatic trick. No, Washington told him. She said the boy glided backward on the floor, wall, and ceiling, according to a police report. Washington did not respond to the star's request for comment. But she told police she was scared when it happened and ran out of the room. As for Walker, Washington said, he ran out of the room with me. We didn't know what was going on, Walker told the star. That was crazy. I was like, everybody gotta go. According to Washington's report, they told a doctor what happened. The doctor, who did not believe them, asked the boy to walk up the wall again. Walker said he told the doctor he doubted the boy could repeat the feat. This kid was not himself when he did that, Walker said. The boy said he didn't remember what happened and couldn't do it, according to Washington's report. Walker, who said he previously believed in demons and spirits, thought the boy's behavior had some demonic spirit to it, but also was the result of a mental illness. A police report quoted Washington saying she believed there could be an evil influence affecting the family. Ammon said she spent the night at the hospital with her seven-year-old son while Campbell took Ammon's daughter and older son to a relative's home in Gary. The next day was Ammon's youngest son's eighth birthday. Ammon says DCS officials asked Campbell to bring the older children back to the hospital, presumably to talk more about what happened. The family celebrated the boy's birthday by singing and eating a miniature cake. Then, Ammons and Washington told them the children wouldn't be going home. DCS took the emergency step of taking custody of the children without a court order. All of the children were experiencing spiritual and emotional distress, Washington wrote in the DCS form. Ammons told the star that she and her children cried because they didn't want to be separated. We'd already been through so much and fought so hard for our lives, she recalled. It's obvious we are a team and we were beating it, whatever we were fighting. We made it through together as a team and they separated us. The Reverend Michael Magdanell was leading Bible study in his living room the morning of April 20th, 2012 
when he received a call from a hospital chaplain. Magano had been the priest of St. Stephen Martin Parish in Maryville for more than 10 years, but had not received a request like this one. The chaplain asked him to perform an exorcism on Ammon's nine-year-old son. Magano agreed to interview the family after Sunday Mass a few days later. The first step, Magano said, was ruling out natural causes for what Ammons and her family said they were experiencing. He visited Ammons and Campbell in the Carolina Street home, April 22, 2012. For two hours, Ammons and Campbell detailed the phenomena for him. Then Campbell interrupted the interview to point out a flickering bathroom light. The flickering stopped each time Magano walked over to investigate which he attributed to a demonic presence. It must be scared of me, he later told the star he had thought. The interview was interrupted again when Campbell pointed out the Venetian blinds in the kitchen, swinging even though there is no air current. Magano said he also saw wet footprints throughout the living room. Ammons complained about having a headache. Magano said she convulsed when he placed a crucifix against her head. After a four-hour interview, Magno said he was convinced the family was being tormented by demons. He also said he believed there were ghosts in the house. Magno blessed the house before he left, praying, reading from the Bible, and sprinkling holy water in each room. He told Ammons and Campbell to leave because it wasn't safe, and they temporarily moved in with a relative. But less than a week later, the two women were back on Carolina Street to let Washington, the DCS family case manager, check the condition of the home. Washington asked the Lake County police officer to come with her. Two other officers, one each from Gary and Hammond Police Departments, asked to join them out of professional curiosity. Ammons refused to go inside, but Campbell agreed to accompany the group. Ammon's kids still were in DCS custody. The main floor had three bedrooms, a living room, one bathroom, hardwood floors, and a small open-style kitchen. A door in the kitchen led to a basement with concrete floors. Directly under the stairs was a dirt floor. The concrete around it was jagged as though it had been broken. The makeshift altar Ammons had created was still in place, along with the rings of salt she had poured against the basement walls to dissuade the demons, according to a Hammond Police Department report. Campbell told officers that demons seemed to emanate from beneath the stairs. Austin, the Gary police captain, was one of those officers. He later told the star he believed in ghosts and the supernatural, but said he didn't believe in demons. Austin said he changed his mind after visiting the Carolina Street House. During the interview with Campbell, one of the officer's audio recorders malfunctioned. The power light flashed to indicate the batteries were dying, even though the officer had placed fresh batteries in the recorder earlier that day. Another officer recorded audio, and when he played it back later, heard an unknown voice whisper, Hey, according to Lake County Police records. That officer also took photos of the house, 
In one photo of the basement stairs, there was a cloudy white image in the upper right-hand corner. When an officer enlarged the photo, that cloud appeared to resemble a face. The enlargement also revealed a second green image that police say looked like a female. Austin said photos he snapped with his iPhone also seemed to have a strange silhouettes in them. Their radio and his police-issued Ford malfunctioned on the way home. Later, Austin said the garage at his scary home refused to open, even though the power was on everywhere else. Austin said the driver's seat in his personal 2005 Infiniti also started moving backward and forward on its own. He said that he had the car checked at the dealership, and the mechanic told him the motor on the driver's seat was broken, which the mechanic said could have caused the distraction leading to an accident. Austin said he found himself starting to believe Ammon's claim of paranormal activity, but the mental health professionals evaluating Ammon's and her children remained skeptical. In April 2012, DCS petitioned Lake Juvenile Court for temporary wardship of the three children. Their request was granted. DCS found that Ammon's neglected her children's education by not having them in school regularly. The agency made the same finding in 2009. Ammons told Washington there were times she could not send the kids to school because the spirits would make them sick or they would be up all night without sleep. DCS temporarily placed her daughter and older son at St. Joseph's Carmelite Home in East Chicago. Ammons' youngest son was sent to Christian Haven in Wheatfield for a psychiatric evaluation. Clinical psychologist Stacy Wright, who evaluated Ammon's youngest son, said the boy tended to act possessed whenever he was challenged, redirected, or asked questions he did not want to answer. In her evaluation, Wright wrote that he seemed coherent and logical except when he talked about demons. It was then that the eight-year-old stories became bizarre, fragmented, and illogical, Wright said. His stories changed each time he told them. He also changed the subject, quizzing Wright on math problems and asking her about outer space. Can you die if you go to space, he asked. How do you get to space? Do you have to wear a helmet and suit? Wright believed the eight-year-old did not suffer from a true psychotic disorder. This appears to be an unfortunate and sad case of a child who has been induced into a delusional system perpetuated by his mother and potentially reinforced by other relatives, she wrote in her psychological evaluation. Clinical psychologist Joel Schwartz, who evaluated Ammon's daughter and older son, came to a similar conclusion. There also appears to be a need to assess the extent to which Ammon's daughter may have been unduly influenced by her mother's concerns that the family was exposed to paranormal experiences. Ammon's daughter told Schwartz that she saw shadowy figures in the Carolina Street home. She also said she twice went into trances. Ammon's older son told Schwartz that doors would slam and stuff started moving around. Ammons also was examined several times by psychologists who said she was guarded but did not seem to be experiencing symptoms of psychosis or thought disorder, 
One psychologist recommended Ammons to be assessed to determine whether her religiosity may be masking underlying delusional ideations or perceptual disturbances. Ammons and all three kids continued to insist they were possessed by demons. DCS set goals for the family. One of them stipulated that the children not discuss demons and being possessed and take responsibility for their actions. They also needed to participate in therapy to address past behavior. While DCS officials credited Ammons for sharing a close bond with her children, the agency also said she needed to use alternate forms of discipline not directly related to religion and demon possession. Appropriate discipline included encouragement, rules, and withholding privileges. She could work on those goals during supervised visits with the children. Ammons also had to find a job and appropriate housing due to the paranormal activity at the house on Carolina Street. While Ammons worked on meeting those objectives, police and DCS officials continued to investigate strange happenings in the house. The group was a bit larger this time. Campbell, Ammons, Austin, and the two other police officers from the initial visit went back to the Carolina Street home on the afternoon of May 10th, 2012. The police officers visited after work hours. They were joined by Maganoe, two Lake County officers with the police dog, and DCS family case manager, Samantha Illick. Illick, who was there in an official capacity, told the star she volunteered to go in Washington's place because Washington didn't want to go back to the house. A county officer took his police dog around the home, but the dog didn't show interest in any particular area. Everyone else was headed to the basement. Illick touched some strange liquid she saw dripping in the basement and said it felt slippery yet sticky between her fingers. Magano told police that he wanted to check the dirt under the stairs for a pentagram or personal objects that might have been cursed. He said a pentagram might indicate a demonic presence and possible portal to hell. Or if someone had died in the house and was buried under the stairs, it could explain paranormal activity. One of the police officers dug a four-foot by three-foot hole beneath the stairs, unearthing a pink press-on fingernail, a white pair of panties, a political shirt pin, a lid for a small cooking pan, socks with the bottoms cut off below the ankles, candy wrappers, and a heavy metal object that looked like a weight for a drapery cord. Finding nothing else, the officer replaced the dirt and raked over it. Magano blessed some salt, which he said was a barrier to evil, and spread it under the stairs throughout the basement. Illick said she was later standing in the living room with the rest of the group when her left pinky started to tingle and whiten. She complained it felt broken. Less than 10 minutes later, Illick said she felt as if she was having a panic attack. She couldn't breathe, so she walked outside to wait for the group. When the priest started questioning Ammons inside the house, she complained of a headache and shoulder pain. She joined Illick outside. Ammons said he left the house at nightfall. Austin, who has been shot at and has investigated murders, rapes, and armed robberies during his more than three decades on the forest, 
said he wasn't staying in the house past dark. The other officers continued to walk through the hall. On the main floor, they noticed an oil-like substance dripping from the Venetian blinds in a bedroom, but they couldn't figure out where it was coming from. To make sure Campbell or Ammons hadn't poured oil on the blinds, two of the officers used paper towels to clean it off. The officers sealed the room for 25 minutes and stood nearby so no one could walk in. When they went back in, the oil had reappeared. Magano told police the liquid was a manifestation of a paranormal or demonic presence. He wrote a report detailing his findings and asked Bishop Del Milsex permission to perform an exorcism on Ammons. Magano said Melzick had never authorized an exorcism in 21 years as Bishop of the Diocese of Gary. Debbie Bozick, Director of Communications for the Diocese, said she cannot comment on whether Melzick has ever approved an exorcism for confidentiality reasons. In general, she said, such an action would require a bishop's approval. Melzick initially denied Magano's request to do a church-sanctioned exorcism. The bishop told Magano to contact other priests who have performed exorcisms. Magano said he needed other priests to give him the ritual for a minor exorcism, which does not require church approval. The priests he consulted told him to look it up on the internet. He said he did an intense blessing on the Carolina Street home to expel bad spirits. That same day, Magano performed a minor exorcism on Ammons. The ritual consisted of prayers, statements, and appeals to cast out demons. The two police officers in Illich, the DCS family case manager, attended the ritual. Illich said she left believing that something was going on, although she wouldn't go as far as saying it was demonic. She said she got chills during the nearly two-hour rite. We felt like someone was in the room with you, someone breathing down your neck. Illich said she had a string of medical problems after visiting the home. A week after she visited the house for the last time, Illich said she got third-degree burns from a motorcycle. Within 30 days, she had also broken three ribs, jet skiing, broke a hand when she hit a table, then broke an ankle running in flip-flops. I had friends who wouldn't talk to me because they believed that something had attached itself to me, Illich said. Her joking response, I'm already evil. They try to find something that's not evil and corrupt it. They wouldn't waste their time on me. After the minor ritual, Magano told Ammons to look up the names of the demons that were tormenting her. Each demon has a name and personality, Magano said. A name has power, the priest added. He planned to use those names to fight the demons during the exorcisms. Ammon said she and a friend looked up the demons' names online by searching for demons that represented the problems the family had been having. The computer kept shutting down. She said she felt sick and lightheaded. But she said they found the names that fit. One such name was Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies, Ammon said. She said they also found the names of demons that torture and hurt kids, which she felt explained what happened in the Carolina Street House. Ammon said other high-ranking demons were also assigned to her, including lieutenants and sergeants. 
After the minor rite, Magano said Bishop Melzek gave him permission to exercise Ammons. The ritual is the same as the minor exorcism, but more powerful because it has the backing of the Catholic Church. Magano ultimately performed three major exorcisms on Ammons, two in English and the last one in Latin, in June 2012 at his Merrillville Church. During each, Magano said he praised God and condemned the devil. He pressed a crucifix against Ammon's head as he spoke. I cast you out, unclean spirit, along with every satanic power of the enemy, every specter from hell, and all your fell companions, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Magano said his voice continued to get louder and more forceful until the demon weakened. He said he could tell how strong the demon was by how much Ammons convulsed. Two police officers who had kept in touch with Magano since the home investigation stood nearby in case Ammons needed to be restrained. Ammons said she prayed with Magano until it became too painful. She said she felt as if something inside of her was trying to hold on and inflict pain at the same time. She said it was different from a natural pain, but felt as intense as giving birth. I was hurting all over from the inside out, she remembered. I'm trying to do my best and be strong. Eventually, Magano said, Ammons fell asleep. She said that was the demon's way of lessening the ritual's effect. In between the second and third exorcisms, Magano said he went on a retreat. A woman who assisted Magano with some of the exorcisms helped set up a backup plan in case Ammons had problems while Magano was gone. The woman wrote a long demon name. Magano says he can't remember which one it was, on a piece of paper and tucked it in an envelope. Then she surrounded it with blessed salt. If Ammons had problems, the woman would burn the envelope, Magano said. By this time, Ammons and her mother had moved to Indianapolis, but they drove back for the exorcisms in the court hearings, as her children were still in DCS's care. Magano said he blessed the family's new home to prevent more problems, but Amos called while Magano was on his retreat, complaining of bad dreams, so the woman burned the envelope. She saved the ashes to burn later in a church bonfire. After that, Amos said her nightmares ended. In the final exorcism at the end of June 2012, Magano said he prayed and berated the demons in Latin rather than English. Police officers did not attend, so Magano said his brother stood guard. Magano said Ammons convulsed while he condemned the demons, but did not convulse during prayer. When she fell asleep, he said words of thanksgiving. It would be the last time Ammons saw Magano. She and her mother drove back to Indianapolis, where they say they now live without fear. Ammon's old home on Carolina Street became an object of local curiosity, so much so that the owner and landlord, Charles Reed, called the Gary Police Department to ask officers to stop driving by the house because it was scaring his new tenant. He said there were no problems in the home before or after Ammon's and her family lived there. I thought I had heard it all, said Reed, who's been a landlord for 33 years. This was a new one to me. My belief system has a hard time jumping over that bridge. 
When told of the Catholic Church's involvement in the situation, however, Reed said that it made him less skeptical. Ammons regained custody of her three children in November 2012, about six months after they had been removed. DCS continued to check in on the children and make sure they were going to school until the case was closed last February. Ammons called her children's return the happiest day of her life. She said they screamed and jumped up and down when she picked them up from the DCS office in Gary. It was just awesome, Ammons said. I hadn't been that happy in God knows how long. The children said they felt safe after they left the house on Carolina Street, the family said. The three left their demonic voices and complaints behind them. No demonic presences or spirits in the home, DCS family case manager Christina Olgenik wrote in the team meeting notes January 10, 2013. She did not return calls from the star seeking comment. The family is no longer fixated solely on religion to explain or cope with the children's behavior issues. For her part, Ammon said it was not the psychologist who resolved her problems, but God. When you hear something like this, she said, don't assume it's not real because I've lived it. I know it's real. Roland Doe, the chilling true story that inspired The Exorcist. The Exorcist is a classic 1973 horror film directed by William Friedkin. The film, which tells the story of a young girl who is possessed by a demonic force, is one of the highest grossing horror films of all time, and critics praised it as a truly terrifying film experience. But many people don't realize that the popular horror film was actually inspired by a true story. Just in time for Halloween, here's the real story behind one of the scariest movies ever made. In the late 1940s, a 13-year-old boy commonly known by the alias Roland Doe was mourning the death of his aunt. The aunt had taught him about spiritualism, including how to use a Ouija board. Roland's family notes that strange things started happening in their house shortly after the death of this beloved family member. In January 1949, the family reported hearing strange dripping noises and scratching sounds in the house. At first, Roland's mother believed the noises were connected to the dead aunt, so the family started trying to reach out to the spirits they believed to be in the house, hoping they could reason with them and ask to be left alone. However, this only made things worse. Roland claimed he could hear someone walking in his room at night when he was trying to sleep, and there were scratch marks found on his mattress in the morning. Eventually, scratch marks began also appearing on his body. Not knowing what else they could do, the family called the local minister, and after observing the boy overnight at church, the minister suggested they reach out to the Jesuits. The family converted to Catholicism and tried to have Roland baptized, but the young boy responded to their baptism attempts with unbridled rage. 
At one point, Roland was admitted to a hospital where a psychiatrist attempted to treat him was ultimately unsuccessful. From there, the family thought moving Roland to a different house might make the spirits leave them alone. But the strange events continued. The family was out of options, and so they called upon priests to perform an exorcism. Father Raymond J. Bishop was one of the priests who was called in for the exorcism. Bishop later wrote about his experiences. Another priest who came to assist the family was Father William S. Boldern. At one point, Boldern attempted to protect Roland through blessings and by putting a crucifix under the young boy's pillow. After leaving Roland to rest, the family returned to find furniture flipped over and the crucifix moved to the edge of the bed. Roland's mattress was shaking uncontrollably. Priests performed multiple exorcisms on young Roland Doe. One was performed at Georgetown University Hospital, a Jesuit institution. Another took place at the Alexian Brothers Hospital in South St. Louis, Missouri. While the exorcisms were performed, Young Roland vomited, urinated, spit, and spoke in Latin. Roland also took on a deep, adult-sounding voice that was unfamiliar. The final exorcism was conducted with the help of priests Walter Halloran and William Van Roo. At some point during the exorcism ritual, Halloran's nose was broken. In the end, the priests claimed that they were successful in exorcising the demons from Roland's body and the young boy went on to live a normal life. William Peter Blatty consulted Bishop's journals and talked with Baldern in order to get the details of the exorcism for his fictional account of a similar story in his novel, The Exorcist. Blatty's novel was quickly picked up and adapted into a film, and both the novel and the film remain popular to this day. Thank you for joining me tonight. I hope you're fast asleep. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Dead Asleep Pod and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Sweet dreams. <laughs>